Podcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Roger Hudson. And I'm Gregory Robinson. And we are joined here today by Marie Gagan. Welcome, Marie. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being here. So you are a fourth-year PhD student in the uh, Philosophy of Physics program here at Western. How did you find your way into the philosophy of physics? What actually brought you here, intrigued you to come here to begin with? So I started my career actually as a musician in France, oh. and I had to switch career for, uh, career for because of an injury. And so I had to ask myself what really brought me joy in doing music, okay. and turns out that it was really what I enjoyed the most was the fact that music brings together, especially Baroque music, brings together mathematics and physics and art. And I wanted to find that somewhere else. And I only found it in philosophy. So that's how I started philosophy in France. And I did my master's in France. And then I applied for the PhD program here in Western. That's an interesting way to bring two uh, seemingly, I guess, different fields together to uh, mix them up and uh, make something very interesting at the end of the day. Yeah, and how, how come Western instead of any other university here in Canada? It was because of the Rotman Institute of Philosophy. So what I was really interested in was uh, especially an interdisciplinary approach because I wanted to keep this feeling of bringing together things that look different but are not so different. Okay. And so I wanted to work at the intersection of philosophy and mathematics and and physics and uh, the Rotman Institute of Philosophy is exa- exactly doing that. Okay, and so your research then brings in many different fields altogether? That's what I'm trying to do, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the hope. <laughs> what, what exactly is your research? So my PhD is about uh, how to choose between series that are making the same prediction or between series that, uh, that do not make clear prediction, like that you don't know when you don't know exactly what your series are saying about the world, and you need indirect inferences to know what kind of uh, predictions they make. Then how do you choose between series? So that's what my PhD is about. The one part is really formal work, uh, addressing the question of when two series are equivalent to each other, and the other part is really about working on simulation and how, from simulation, you can get to know uh, what your series are telling you about the world and about the universe. So I guess there's two different perspectives there. There's there's the perspective where there's two different or several different competing theories which are explaining a similar or uh, I guess an identical phenomenon and they're just uh, th- there's different ideas about how the mechanisms go about explaining what what the end product is. Yeah, part of my work is dedicated to a series that are targeting the exact domain of phenomena, making the same kind of prediction. And yet you have several series that are competing. So how do you choose between them? What kind of strategies are available to you to choose between them? For instance, between several interpretations of quantum mechanics that are observationally equivalent, what kind of strategy you can use to privilege one over the other? So you're talking about different theories. Is there a certain area that you're looking at about these theories, or is it just many different areas? Like it could be about music, or could it be about other sciences, or is it just one specific area that you're looking at for these theories? I'm looking at physics only, but it's true that it's a question that can arise for many other different fields. Maybe I, I haven't been looking into these questions, but I'm, right now in physics, I'm, I'm mainly interested in very s- small-scale phenomena like quantum series and very large-scale se- phenomena mm. like cosmological models. Okay. 
Very interesting. So, so you also mentioned that the other, I guess, um, avenue to explore uh, the question that you're asking here in your PhD thesis is uh, uh, two or several different competing theories that don't exactly um, explicitly give out what their exact predictions are. You have to arrive at what their predictions are through indirect mechanisms or arrive at your own conclusions by interpreting what they're explaining by yourself. Yeah, so the standard cosmological model is called the lambda CDM model because it's lambda is uh, is the cosmological constant and CDM stands for cold dark matter. And this model is said to be very successful at large scale because it predicts uh, very accurately how we get the structure we get in the universe from a primordial giant uh, plasma. So from okay. this primordial soup, how you get the universe that it is and the structure <laughs> you you observe. So it's, it's said to be very successful at very large scale, but rival models are equally successful at uh, predicting the structure we observe. What's different is really about the small scale structure, what cosmologists call small scale structure, that is galaxy and galaxy formation. Oh, and when small. it comes to... <laughs> ga- yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> very small. And when it comes to galaxy formation, uh, cold dark matter has doesn't fare as well as other models. It has it meets several problems, but all of these predictions are known through simulation. So one of the questions you can ask is, is the problem the cold dark matter model or is the problem the simulation we're making that are not entirely reliable? And how do you know wh- which one is the case? Because you cannot compare the outcome of your simulation with observation. So how do you know? Cold, dark matter. Yeah. What a hot topic. <laughs> I, I just had to get that out. Now, now, you really like this joke. <laughs> <laughs> so so how, how would you go about, uh, I guess, comparing or sifting through the different competing theories and arriving at what or which theory would be the best one that would go about explaining the world in, in the most meaningful uh, way? That's a difficult question. Um, so, uh, I guess, are, are you? Do you have to be an expert in whatever area that, that you're looking from, at from a f- philosophical point of view, in order to, you know, really judge the theories uh, by uh, what what they're actually claiming, or could you go about it, perhaps through a more logical perspective or, or different ways that that a non-expert can go about making judgments or coming to their own conclusions? So when we re- when you're working on uh, developing methods for choosing a theory, of course you don't want to be talking only to philosophers. You want to mm-hmm. convince physicists, and you want to at least, if you don't have like a normative approach saying this is what you should be doing, guy, you want at least them to um, be able to listen to you to understand your point, and you also want to be able to account for what they're doing. So if your method got wrong. Absolutely everything what that happened in the history of choosing <laughs> theories. Probably not a good theory. Yeah, probably not a, <laughs> a good method. So you want to be able to have a dialogue, an informed dialogue with scientists. Does it mean that you need to be an expert in uh, physics and have the same level of expertise and physicists in order to do that? I think it's a different s- skill set. You're just uh, you're adopting a more abstract point of view on theories and you're really looking at the structure of scientific theories and the structure of reasonings more than uh, diving into the real world and trying to experiment and see what your theory are really telling you. Hmm. And so you look at dark matter. So do you have a good understanding of dark matter and potentially explain it to me? <laughs> uh, well, I can try. <laughs> so there's... Uh, 
it actually took a very, very long time before dark matter was accepted as a plausible hypothesis. It started in the 30s uh, when an astronomer called Zwicky was observing uh, clusters of clusters of galaxies. And he was using a technique called the Virial Serum to, uh, that helps you to um, predict the mass of celestial objects. And so he compared the observed mass to the predicted mass and noticed the discrepancy between the two, uh, the two of them. And he was the first one coining the term dark matter to account for this missing matter that could explain the discrepancy he had observed. And then you got several lines of evidence adding up um, rotational velocities of galaxies, simulation that were showing that if you try to simulate a disk galaxies, it's a very unstable system, yet you see, you observed uh, this galaxy with circular orbits. So what's going on in your simulations that makes it an unstable system? And uh, astrophysicists came up with a solution uh, that consisted in adding more matter in the form of a halo surrounding the galaxy. So in the, in the 80s, you had more and more and more lines of evidence adding up until somebody came up with this model of a dark matter halo in which galaxy would be embedded. And that was what marked the uh, acceptance of the dark matter model. Okay, so there's matter out there that we can't necessarily see, yeah. but we know that is there because there is an effect seen through its mass, essentially. Yeah, it's so dark gravity. matter only interacts gravitationally, so you yeah. can only detect it through uh, its gravitational effects. Yeah, so because if we there's a change in the gravitation field that we predict there must be some sort of mass there with the actual results is different than what we predict without without the dark matter yeah because there's yeah yeah because you can uh, use your theory of gravity to infer some conclusion about the mass of some system and the relationship between the mass and the ro rotational velocity gotcha. of galaxies then uh, you notice that difference There's between difference. what you predict yeah. and what you so that's observe. how they know what's what's cold dark matter then what's the difference between that and is there a warm dark matter yeah <laughs> it's, it's a kind of dark matter so you can have cold dark matter warm dark matter self-interacting dark matter it's basically about the the speed of dark matter if it's relativistic speed that is if it goes close to the light speed then it's uh, uh, hot dark matter and if not, then it's called dark matter. And if it interacts not only gravitationally, but with itself as well, it's self-interacting dark matter. And so have they shown these different speeds in actual dark matter, or we're we just talking about simulations? So it was simulation, uh, uh, which helped determining choosing between uh, hot dark matter and cold dark matter, because they noticed that the structure we observe at large scale wouldn't be accounted for by hot dark matter. But self-interacting dark matter mm. and uh, warm dark matter are really like new, more recently developed hypotheses, and they're still trying to explore the properties that dark matter would have in those models. And some of these models actually do better than cold dark matter at small scale. So I guess cold ma dark matter or warm dark matter would be competing forms of theories for which we don't have actual evidence for. We I don't I don't. You please tell me, have we ever actually seen or felt or actually measured dark matter, or is it still just an indirect theory for which it's it's the best explanation for what we currently observe in the real world? Yeah, there are examples of rival models um, that we don't have any evidence for, like any empirical evidence for, in the sense that 
a lot of uh, candidates for dark matter particles have been uh, uh, suggested and none of them have been detected so far in any of the experiments that have been happening. So there's no other evidence mm. uh, for um, cold dark matter over warm dark matter mm. uh, than simulation. So it's really through simulation that uh, we know what these models would be saying about the universe and what the universe would look like in a universe uh, with dark with cold dark matter as opposed to a universe with warm dark matter. So they have these models and they've done tests to see if that these theories on dark matter do exist in the world, but we haven't seen anything showing that these do actually exist other than the gravitational differences, right? But this isn't determining cold or dark, uh, cold or warm matter. So then you're saying the simulations are the only things that's suggesting cold over warm? Is that what you're, th you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So how do we actually know that these simulations are right? And how do we know that maybe these, like what they're saying might fit what how we see the world better? How do we know that, that we're not just like th it's because we've made a model specifically trying to find that, but we don't actually, it's not actually true. That's an excellent question. It's actually <laughs> the question of my mm. dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So the, there's one method that I've been developed in um, philosophy of biology by philosopher and biologist, by biologist, sorry, that is called robustness analysis. And basically it's the idea that when you come up with a model, you need to make some idealization and some uh, simplification and you don't always know what kind of impact this idealization would have. So if you want to know whether a prediction of your model is trustworthy or not, you can compare the range of model you have and this range of model will rely on different assumptions. And if they agree on their prediction, then you can think of this prediction of, uh, as reliable in the sense that it, it, you have a different, you have a broad range of models lying in a different way, and if they don't share any assumption in common and still make the same prediction, then you can trust the fact that this prediction is reliable. So that was one of the methods developed in uh, biology and is really used a lot in cosmology. They call that convergence, but it's really the same idea. If you're running different simulation using different codes with different numerical parameters, and they still agree on their predictions, then you can be confident that this prediction is a reliable one. And this is what I'm criticizing. Okay. Are you at, at what level of analysis are you criticizing it? At, at the level at, uh, that the two theories converge to make the same prediction, or at the way that they get to that prediction to begin with? What I'm criticizing is the fact that you can use convergence as an indicator of reliability, because sometimes yeah. you have phenomena that will that are purely artificial and will create convergence. Sure. Like you have some physical phenomena, for instance, that can turn your uh, model into an attractor. So that, there's a very interesting prediction made by the cold dark matter that doesn't fit our observation, and it's about the, the density profile of galaxies. So basically, cold dark matter predicts a cuspy profile with a dense core for the galaxy, and what you observe is a more flat density distribution. And um, an astrophysicist called Boshev has been showing that um, because of the idealization you're doing in your simulation, you might have some collisional effects between different particles. So particles uh, that are simulated are more massive than real dark matter particles. And because of that, you're going to have some collisional effects that are, are actually going to create, create a dense core uh, 
within your galaxy. But it's purely artificial because dark matter particles are collisionless, they're massless, they're collisionless. What you're simulating is not. The particles you're simulating are approximately, uh, approximately 10 to the power of minus 6 solar mass. So you're going to have collisional effects that do not exist in the real world. So this would be an example, I guess, of noise or, or just things that you're not trying to measure interfering with what you're trying to measure. Yeah, I don't know whether you can use measure because it's really not about the real world, but sure. just yeah. about your simulated system. What you're including, but, yeah. I guess, variables within the simulation. Yeah, you need to make some idealization because you cannot simulate 10 billions of dark matter particles yeah. or whatever. <laughs> so you need to make some idealization and run less particles than uh, uh, what you would have in the real world. So in your simulation, run less particle, a, f a smaller number of particles, but still have the same average density. So simulate it's really massive particle, and of course they're not going to interact with each other the same way than massless particle would do. So this is an example of um, an idealization that can have a huge impact on the outcome of the simulation, and you need to have a better understanding of what's going on here and what kind of effect or impact this idealization would have. Even if it's at a smaller scale, which is what we do in science more generally, is we sample from the population and try and represent what is the general population that we're trying to generalize our results to. So yeah, I, I don't know whether it's exactly the same uh, problem because it's really about possible bias in your sample or uh, the way you're sampling your population. I don't know whether you would have the same kind of arti artificial effects <laughs> doing that. But it's in general, by taking a small, by not measuring uh, or simulating all 10 trillion dark matter particles, by just taking a smaller number with the same ratio or proportion of all the other particles, you're essentially hopefully arriving at the same conclusions as if you were to have measured or simulated the entire universe worth of dark matter. Yeah, there's an analogy in the sense that you can you cannot ask everybody <laughs> in the <laughs> world, and so you cannot sample the entire population. So you need to make a specific choice for your sample, and the way you're going to uh, make this choice is going to impact the result of your experiment. So there's, a, there's an analogy here, yeah. So you can't simulate all of the dark matter particles, so they somehow average it or something like that? Yeah, they average the density they would have. So okay. That's why you have like supermassive uh, simulated particles. Okay. What's a supermassive simulated particle? Oh, I'm not sure that's the right expression, but what I meant by that is uh, instead of having a massless particle, you're going to have a particle you're going to have a particle with uh, like half 10 to the power of minus 6 solar mass. So an extremely small mass. But still more relative to what Yeah, it it's it's huge is. compared to what it should be. Compared yeah. to nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Dark matter, such an enlightening subject, clearly. I, I'm curious because <laughs> we, we've talked about how there's not, or, or all the evidence to date is indirect. It must be there because of everything or all of the converging evidence that we're seeing. But is there any potential, because we're not actually able to get hard evidence on dark matter, is there any possibility that somewhere down the line we have to throw this whole theory out and come up with a different one, or another theory would come and take over and, and you know overwhelm or overcome the dark matter theory. So the model is said to be in crisis right now, and a lot of people are wondering uh, what the future of dark matter is, looks like, because 
a lot of uh, possible candidates have been suggested for dark matter particles. A lot of experiments happen in colliders with no positive outcome. So far, the only thing that happened is that they reduced the possibility space for possible parameters for candidates. And they're kind of running out of ideas <laughs> for uh, finding new candidates. The problem is that you don't really have rival for dark matter model broadly, uh, broadly construed. You have a, a model code uh, called modified Newtonian gravity, MOND, and its relativistic version. But it, it, it doesn't have the same property at large scale than the cold dark matter has. So it, it does way better at small scale, but it, has, it targets a very uh, small range of phenomena. And there's no clear rival for the dark matter model understood as a theory of the universe. Do you do any simulations yourself, or are you just looking at other people's simulations? So uh, in the past, I was always only looking at other uh, simulation, but we started a project. My supervisor um, is working with uh, uh, Jim Weatherall at Irvine, and they got a Templeton grant for working together and involving physicists and astrophysicists in their project. So we started a code comparison project with astrophysicists at UCI, where we're collaborating uh, with uh, astrophysicists to run simulation and to actually being involved in the project and comparing different codes. Okay. So you're trying to see whose simulation is the best or why would they be better than in certain areas? I'm trying to say what they should do if they want to know when simulations are reliable. Gotcha. Okay. So I, I, I suppose that your research, uh, I guess, on how one gets to the conclusions that they're trying to make um, has a lot of implications for today's day-to-day um, -day world or today's, I guess, for sure, the political culture. But, but what I'm actually more interested in is your perspective or your thoughts on whether or not we're living in a simulation currently, <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, we're knowing a lot. We're getting to know a lot about the world through simulations. There's a lot of areas that heavily depend on simulation, like health science or climate science. So I'm really hoping that the work I'm doing um, when it comes to dark matter simulation and understanding what makes a prediction reliable as opposed to artificial uh, can be extended to other areas. So I'm really hoping to be able to work with uh, scientists from different horizons and see whether my work can be extended to what they're doing, but that's, yeah, for the future. Wow. Outside of dark matter? Yeah, outside yeah. of dark matter. Working on things that Maybe can be seen can for once. Seen, yeah. <laughs> Are there any, I, I guess, logical strategies that you might go about, um, you know, looking into your own research that you could apply to other things in the world that people might have some trouble sifting through the, the noise or the baggage that comes along with the true facts or the true information that they're trying to seek out? So I'm trying to revive a very old idea in philosophy of science that you can have what's called crucial experiment. So the idea is that uh, you have if you have two competing series, then you can extract an hypothesis from both of them, predict something out of this hypothesis, and then go check the world and see which one, uh, whether this prediction is observed or not. And then, depending on whether it's observed or not, you can choose which series is refuted or whether it's uh, confirmed, which series is confirmed. Or a merger between the two theories, potentially. That I don't know. If, <laughs> they're not supposed to be logically compatible if you're uh, 
<laughs> comparing them. So who knows? But it's a very old idea that has been um, criticized a lot because of the fact that there's no really. Uh, it's difficult to refute a theory just based on an experiment like that, just because you can always amend your auxiliary hypothesis in such a way that you're going to recover the da data that you want to observe. So it was really criticized. But I'm trying to apply that uh, in order to develop the idea of crucial simulation, where really what you're trying to understand is whether the process uh, responsible for the outcome of the simulation is a physical process or a numerical process, and what would happen if it's a numerical process, extract a hypothesis from that, run a super idealized, simplified simulation, and check what's happening. So I'm trying to revive this old idea of a crucial experiment and applying it to simulation. And that's not current. This has been out of, I guess, the context for a long time now. Yeah, it was uh, developed by Bacon, in Bacon, Francis Bacon, in the 16th century, mm. and uh, really, really heavily criticized by Duhem in the beginning of the 20th century, a French philosopher. <laughs> and it has been abandoned ever since. So just because we're we're quickly, and we could go on all day, but this is such a fascinating topic. You've blown my mind, I, I promise you that. Now, you, you did mention that you came to Canada from France. Uh, yeah. Was that to begin the PhD yeah. here at Western? Yeah. And, and you also mentioned that you like to keep, that you used to be a musician and you like to integrate music into your research as well. Maybe just give some kind of uh, hindsight or some kind of uh, value that you can share that uh, reflects the integration of those two. Oh, well, the way I kept music in my life was by marrying a musician. A musician. So that's <laughs> one way of keeping music. But uh, I think what I learned the, the most by being a musician is uh, how to structure my work and how to get some like uh, work ethics and work discipline. Because when you're a child and you're going home and you have your homework to do, that the last thing you want to do is go play piano while everybody is playing outside. So I think I learned a lot through that. And it's also, yeah, the communication between different arts. When you're a musician, you you sometimes have the opportunity of playing in uh, with respect to different kind of arts with like some people can compose based on a painting or on a sculpture and integrate everything together. And so that's something you learn a lot as a musician, integrating different source. You sometimes you're accompanying uh, singers that are singing poems, poems. Yeah, or yeah. Uh, opera. Or, so you're always integrating different kind of arts somehow. Other than the language, is it much different between Canada and France? It's colder. Colder, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm really excited by the snow and everybody is angry at me for being so excited <laughs> at the snow right now. But yeah, there's a lot of difference. I really admire in Canada the fact that uh, many different uh, civilization say that um, uh, cultures cultures yeah many different cultures are merged and merged and it doesn't create any problem that's something we're not good at in France right now <laughs> this has been a really interesting interview I want to thank you for coming on and telling us about dark matter if anybody else is really interested in this can they do you have like a, a website that they can go to read more about on your research or your social media social media or anything the the group that I'm working with has a as a website called New Direction in the Philosophy of Cosmology. So you can check that website if you're interested. New Direction in the 
philosophy of cosmology. Yeah, you're going to okay. find a link on the website of the Rotman Institute. Okay. <laughs> and we can include a link at the bottom of the podcast link as well. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us, Marie Gigem. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you very, very much for joining us on the show. This has been a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. Uh, my name is Roger Hudson. And this is Gregory Robinson. And if you'd like to get involved with the show at all uh, with GradCast, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Uh, if you'd like to catch up or on any of our previous episodes or keep in touch for any of our future episodes, you can go to our website at gradcastradio.ca. Uh, thank you very much and have a wonderful week. See you next time. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.